The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy inspires leaders to grow their companies from startup to 40 million beyond by designing world-class strategic plans and help keeping them accountable to actually get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. And as we're here in the beginning of 2023, just want to thank once again all of our listeners to helping us become one of the top global podcasts. To help us continue to stay on the top of the podcast, please go out and put your comments and like us and do all what you need to do to continue to reflect what you've done so far. We appreciate all of that. Today, I'm really excited about our guest that we have because he's helping to kick off a great 2023 and a shout out to my sister, Sherry Strandy, who actually made the referral recommendation. Most of our guests come from all of guests around the world. And it's fun to have actually my sister to make this incredible connection that we have. He he has an incredibly inspiring story that I think is going to resonate and inspire you, which is exactly what we want on the podcast. You know, for those of you who might think my time has passed and I can't do that anymore. Steve is going to prove you wrong with his story. And as you looking in the background, Steve, you got all this power equipment and lifting weights behind you. Steve, let me first read your bio first real quick. We're just going to short bio, as we mentioned beforehand. He is a master's indoor rowing world champion and world record holder. He's the owner of Road to Fitness, a certified rowing, fitness, and sports nutrition coaching. He also is a commercial photographer an owner of Steve Tag Studios. He's a husband, father of two boys, stepfather to two more, a whiskey lover, which we may have to talk about, and a cigar aficionado, which I cannot talk much about that. But with that, Steve, welcome to the Measure Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Carl. It's great to be here with you. Well, you have, as I said, truly an inspiring story. I remember I was, when we were doing our prep call, all our guests, we do prep calls. And, and I was like, you know, I, I was like, who's who's this guy from Bend? You know, which is, by the way, one of the, if you have not been to Bend, Oregon, for those who are listening, it's one of the prettiest places in the world. It's not just in the US. It's literally one of the prettiest places in the world. And I'm like, who's this guy from Bend, you know, with the story? And, and then you shared it. And it's like, this is one of the best stories I've actually heard of our 100 plus guests that we've had on. So Steve, why don't you give us a little bit of background about, let's, let's start on the business side, because, you know, a lot, a lot of us on the business side your your core, if you may, was photography. And and how how did you get into that? You know, what what led you into photography and and to help get drive to become a business and, and be able to do that for most of your career? You know, I, I in high school I, I didn't have a lot of direction. I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I was growing up 
in San Diego County. My dad was, you know, he was a farm boy from Missouri that went into the Navy at the age of 18, married my mom when he met her in Japan. My mom had, you know, a second grade education because of the war. And, you know, and, and these are my parents. So when it came to education, you know, there wasn't a lot other than you should join the Navy or be a doctor. Well, doctor would be cool, but how do you get there? So out of high school, all, all my friends were getting scholarships to play football, you know, at USC, UCLA, San Diego, and a senior year comes around and everybody's asking me where I'm going. And I had no idea. I mean, I, I had one of my best friends actually had to, you know, drag me and, and introduce me to what an SAT was and took me down and had me take the test. And, you know, by that time, of course, senior year, it's too late. And, you know, I had coaches scrambling, trying to get me some scholarships, but long story short, you know, I decided I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. So, you know, I took a year off or so. I had moved up to the Bay Area from San Diego, mainly because my girlfriend at the time had moved there with her father. And her father was a pretty good friend of mine, you know, through our relationship. I got to know him pretty well. We used to work out together. And I remember sitting around one day and, you know, talking about what I was going to do. And he said, you know, have you ever thought about photography? And I turned to him and I, I was like, can you actually make a living as a photographer? Is, is that something that people do? And he said, yeah, you know, I work for a big company here in the Bay Area and, you know, we use photographers all the time. I had to go to a photo studio today just to get a simple headshot, but this guy looked like he was doing all right. And so, you know, from there, I started looking into it as a career and eventually ended up applying at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena and got in there after building a portfolio for a year. And when I was accepted, I started school there with enough money to get me through the first couple terms. Knew I had to work my butt off if I wanted to stay there. And I did, ended up getting scholarships. And long story short, finished up with the Art Center and moved to New York City and started my career there. Wow. And first of all, I think one of the things I love about this, first of all, you start out with talent, but you didn't know where to bring it. Right. And so you literally lost out these opportunities on the athletic side that you didn't know, but also lost out opportunities in the school side. Right. But just a comment, right. You know, from, from this dad, right. You know, like, Hey, here, here, have you thought of this? And, and, but you, a lot of people will take those ideas and they'll do nothing with it, but you actually decided to take it and move forward, right? And do something with that opportunity. So here, here you are, you grew up in, and and we never asked this in the prep. I'm kind of curious, you know, you grew up in, in Southern California where it's beautiful and here you're going to school and, and, you know, you're going off to New York. What was that from a, that's a big change. <laughs> It was, you know, where I grew up in San Diego was Poway, which at the time, you know, growing up and through high school, I think the population was around 30. We were North County, kind of inland, it was a little hick town. And so what had happened when I was at the art center, a family friend, really good friend of my brother's, who spent time in New Jersey, was living on the East Coast. And as it turns out, he was friends with a pretty well-known photographer at the time and his brother, who was an agent and repped some of the top photographers and artists in the world. 
And uh, he was visiting my brother at one point and I met him and he said, I didn't know you were into photography. If you ever want to like go meet these guys, let me know and we'll, we'll go out. And so I think it was a matter of a month before I said, let's do it. And we actually ended up in New York City and I met these guys and Barry O'Rourke was the photographer. He was one of the top fashion photographers through the 70s and 80s. He was chief staff photographer for Playboy magazine through the 70s. So talk about someone that has stories. He's He's got plenty. And his brother, again, you know, Gene repped, you know, Art Kane and Barry. And he was, they were pretty well known in New York City. So they, they said, listen, kid, if you want to come back here, we'll, you know, we'll make sure you don't make the mistakes that we made. And that was enough for me to make the decision that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to move to New York City. And uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't go to the last term at Art Center. It was a financial thing, number one. But number two, it was more of a business, like you're building your portfolio and you're learning business. And at the time, again, you know, I, I knew nothing about education and the importance of learning the business side of things. And so I'm thinking, I don't need that. I'm just going to go to New York City and work for these guys and learn the business there, which I did. So I literally packed up a, a, a van, a U-Haul van with everything that I had. My brother said, I'll go with you. So he hopped in the van with me and we drove across country to New York City. Fortunately, again, through this family friend, he had another buddy that was living in New York City that had a two-bedroom apartment and said, if you, if you want a place to stay, you've got one. And so I was able to move right into an apartment and had, you know, work lined up with these other photographers. And it was it was going from, you know, 30,000 people in Poway, then to move up to Pasadena and Los Angeles, which was, was crazy enough, and then to move to New York City, which was just mind blowing. So, you know, it was, it was, it, and I was, you know, in my mid 20s. So, you know, think about being a photographer in New York City, you know, I mean, it was just a dream come true for me. So what, what's interesting about your career is photography is one of those things that it's, for many people, it's a hobby right? You, you said it kind of beforehand, how do I actually make, can you actually make money, right? You know, being, being in photography, the, a lot of people will go into sports or they'll go into acting or they go into these areas that it, it feels like it's almost harder to make money than it is to become a professional athlete, right? Just, just due to, cause there's such interest as a hobby to do it. What did you learn in your early stages to actually be able to make it a business? You know, it, I learned the commercial side of it. So the art center was really good at that. It wasn't the kind of photography school or art school that taught you, you know, oh, let's, you know, go take some nice scenic photos or, or anything like that, or even portraiture. It was about commercial photography, working for ad agencies and magazines and shooting for national advertising campaigns and national magazines and producing quality work. And, you know, I focused on studio, studio lighting and studio product photography. And it was, you know, just knowing New York is really specialized. While I was in school, I decided that that's what I was going to do. And, you know, I studied other photographers. And at that point, you know, I was learning that, you know, with the ad agencies primarily, you know, with the bigger accounts, you could make an extremely good living as a successful commercial photographer. 
um, especially like out of New York or Los Angeles. But, you know, budgets for some of these advertising campaigns is just enormous. And so, you know, again, there's a lot of photographers, right? And there's there's just a little, a little bit up at the top for these top-end photographers, but that's what you shoot for. And that's why you're in the business is to try to be at that, you know, top 1%. You know, yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible once again to be able to make a career. So now when did you come back to the West Coast? You know, what brought you back? And and obviously, once again, Bend couldn't be more different than LA, than Poway, than New York City. You know, what what brought you what brought you to that area? Oh, my brother had lived here for years and, uh, you know, he'd always wanted me to come out and be closer to him and, you know, maybe even get into business with him. But I was, I was in New York city doing really well. You know, I was there trying to think how many years coming up on seven, eight years building my career. It was starting to do really well. I had met my first wife there. We'd gotten married. She was pregnant with our first kid, Dakota. And I remember her coming to me one day and saying, you know, I don't know where I want to go, but I'm not staying in New York City when this kid's born. We're, we're out of here. And I, I was just blown away because I'd put so much into, you know, just so focused on this photography career. And, you know, I'd never thought about what else, where do we go? And you know, at this point, I had a studio and living space. We were 13th, between 13th and 14th Street on Fifth Avenue. So I had this great fire escape where I could look one direction and look up Fifth Avenue, look down Fifth Avenue the other way. And then I had, you know, New York City as the cityscape in front of me. And I walked out on the balcony on the fire escape one evening, and I just went, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And I, I, I just, I, you know, I said... I just want everybody to out here to know who I am, meaning if I was a good photographer, you know, if I was shooting these big campaigns, people would know who I was. And uh, it was one of those be careful what you wish for things. Within a week, I'm walking down the street with a bunch of friends. And one of them is a woman who was a good friend of my wife, went to school with her. And she said, Steve, have you ever thought about doing the news? And I thought, you know, doesn't everybody think about doing the news? <laughs> and she said, well, you know, we're looking for, you know, and she explained the position. Basically, she worked for the company that leased out the helicopter and camera equipment for NBC News. And she said, you know, we're looking for a cameraman and reporter to work in Chopper 4. And if you're interested, come on out. I'd like for you to try. And so I went out and again, so my wife is at home with now our baby. And, you know, I think at this time she was, this was within the year of, of her, you know, wanting to move out. So we are looking at moving to New Jersey because of this, but I went out and tried out for, you know, the chopper four position and I never came home. So in other words, I went out, they tried out and this was in Morristown, New Jersey, which is, you know, half hour, 45 minutes out of New York city. And they said, you're on and we need you to stay here because you've got the 6 a.m. news to do in the morning. You've got the 8 a.m. news to do, news at noon, live at five with Matt Lauer. And, you know, and so there I was all of a sudden thrown into this position. Eventually, my wife and baby and, you know, moved out to New Jersey. And that's what we did for another nine months. But 
my work week was, I was seven days a week, 90 to hundred hours a week. I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I could not leave a 20 minute perimeter of the Morristown airport. So we lived within that 20 minutes and I could not go. So we had, I had no life at all. It was wow. always waiting. And, you know, there's always stuff going on in New York City. So as soon as I get home, you know, at that time, it was like a pager or my cell phone that was this big, you know, calling saying, we got to go, we've got, you know, a fire in New York City or whatever. And I'd have to run back to the airport, we'd take off and, you know, we were on, we'd get home. So, you know, on top of covering the news from 6am in the morning till seven o'clock at night, you know, there was other stuff going on. So we were always on the go. After about nine months of that, my wife said, you know what, this isn't working either. <laughs> so once again, I'm like, what am I going to do? And at that point, you know, I had talked to some clients that I've had, you know, in New York City and New York City is just so cutthroat. You know, you're, you're, you build your reputation and your clientele and, you know, you're gone for a week and everybody's moved on to somebody else. Well, I was gone for nine months. So I was looking at starting all over, but now with, you know, a baby and my wife now was pregnant with our second kid. So that was kind of out of the question to do that. And I had talked to my brother and he said, well, maybe now's the time. And so I threw that, you know, that idea out to my wife and, you know, at the time, and she was, she was not super receptive, but she didn't have any other ideas. So once again, we packed up everything and moved to Bend. And, you know, I was able to retain some of my, that I had in photography that I was able to contact and drum up some business. They would ship me product and I would shoot. But for the most part, I went to work with my brother in the mortgage banking business. And so here I am again now in Bend, which was beautiful, not doing a lot of photography, which is what I want to do. And now I'm in the banking business, which is not what I wanted to do. So, so that didn't last a long time before, you know, I, I dove back in both feet and just said, I've got to make this photo stuff work. I can do it. Bend is growing. There's people coming in, you know, it's, it's just focus. And that's what I did. Wow. Wow. And so now, now it's, first of all, I think it's amazing that, and I think what's interesting about the stories is you did things that was, you know, for family, right? I literally stop your career, completely change it, go into something that's, you know, I, I just can't believe that, you know, just like, okay, now you're working now. Like, I know that the yeah. way you go. It's like, you're, you're on in a helicopter, you know, for basically the next nine months, you moved to Bend, which couldn't be more different than, than New York city, Manhattan. Right. You know, I mean, literally, I mean, couldn't I mean, be any different. And, and so you end up there, you end up continuing the business, but, but now I want to go back because you, you hinted a bit earlier on, you had this athleticism when you were younger, but it, it kind of had a, it went in the back burner, right. You know, for multiple reasons, you know, just, just cause I'll describe, right. You know, the next 10, 15 years, you're, you're trying to get educated and get a business and raise a family and go through all that. But relatively recently you, you came into this new love. And, and so I want you to talk about that a little to first start a little bit about some of the things that you learned in your athletic part and then how you ultimately got to rowing 
and, and how that experience go through. Cause I think that, that to me, this, this is part of the story folks that are listening and st- staying to the story, I think is just absolutely fascinating. Sure. You know, and that, this is something I could talk about all day. You know, it just, I, mainly because, you know, I, it's in my bones. I love it. And it excites me. And I, I love to share this story, you know, again, growing up in Southern California, my parents being who they were, my mom being Japanese was very driven. I think I got that part from her. And, you know, I grew up playing sports, just football and baseball. Those were my things. And, you know, I, I was, I was better than average in most of the sports that I did. And as I continued to play, you know, I, I learned and got better and started to really excel. I, I think I'd mentioned this to you before. I was fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to have a coach when I was, I would say between 10 and 12. So two or three years in there, I had a coach. His name was Joe Lucia, just a, a Sicilian guy that was hard of gold, but could be the meanest, toughest guy you'd ever want to meet in your life. And, you know, I mean, this kind of sums up where he was at with me and what he taught me. And a lot of, a lot of my, you know, current like rowing achievements, I think are based on this just because I've learned to ignore pain in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, take that pain and turn it into just good energy maybe. But I remember one day I was at school and I was in the seventh grade and we were working in art class and we had these linoleum knives and I'm cutting away, cutting away and it slips and it goes right into my thumb in my hand and I'm bleeding all over. And anyway, I go home and had to wait for my mom, I think at some point. Anyway, when she does show up, now I've got baseball practice coming up. And of course, Lucia is my coach. And so, you know, he does teach you respect and responsibility, even at that age. And so I said, you know, we've got to at least go and tell him that I can't make it to to practice because she was going to take me to the hospital to get stitched up and, uh, you know, no cell phones. So we can't just call him and say, I can't make the practice. So we're going to swing by practice. And it was a little rainy. I just remember this so vividly. And I got out of the car and started to tell him what was going on. He looked at it and he said, grab a bat. And he literally made me take batting practice. And it was pretty painful, but it was bleeding all over the place. And, you know, he kept throwing, he was pitching and he kept throwing and kept, you know, I was just just getting more and more angry every, every pitch. Cause I'm thinking this is just, I'm, I'm hurt. I can't be here. And he just kept throwing and kept telling me to hit, kept telling me to hit. And as longer we went, the harder I was hitting the ball, harder I was hitting the ball. And finally he came over and just gave me a great big hug Then took his handkerchief out and wrapped my thumb up and said, that's how you do it. <laughs> I'm like, that's how you do what, you know, <laughs> lose your thumb. But, you know, the same guy, I think it was the next football season it was like one of the first days we're playing football and before you're even in pads right you're just kind of running through some conditioning and stuff and he's having us run some plays and he tells me to go hit this guy and of course we're not in pads or go tackle him and so I go down and I put my head down and you know because that's how we were taught back then 
And the other guy put his head down and his head went right into my eye. And I had this big old shiner and he came over and gave me like $10. I forget what it was, but at the time it was a lot of money. And so, you know, here I am 10, 12 years old and I'm being conditioned, right? That, (laughs) that pain is good. Pain is good. And, you know, Again, you know, it just that just kind of followed me through as far as being able to perform in 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 sports. So, you know, get into high school and, you know, I played football there and it was, you know, I loved it. I loved the competition. I loved the sports. I excelled with it. But again, senior year comes around. My friends are all going somewhere on scholarships and you know, my coaches scrambled at the last minute and got me some scholarships to some small schools all around. But again, not knowing what I wanted to do or what I was doing, I just kind of passed on all that. Long story short, you know, out of school, I went to the Art Center College of Design, which has no athletic program. It's an art school. And uh, from there, New York City, married kids. And, you know, I, I, I always felt like I had this athlete in me, right? This this kid that had these dreams of growing up and playing pro football or or some sport, at least at least play at a college level like my friends did. And I feel like, you know, somehow I missed all that. Not blaming anybody, but just life took me in that direction without knowing having parents that, you know, pushed you to a college and had you go the right directions and stuff without that, I had no guidance and, you know, it's just what it was. And I was just scrambling to do my best at whatever I could do, you know, later on in life, my kids grow up and I had the opportunity now to coach them, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I didn't coach them like Lucia coached me, I assure you. So (laughs) although my older son would tell me, tell you about one time where he broke his toe and I told him to get back in and start playing because it was probably just a sprain, but it was broke. But, you know, I grew up with my kids playing sports that fulfilled me a little bit, but again, there's still something inside of me that knew, you know, without a better way to explain it, just, I knew that I could really be good. I knew that I was better than a lot of people at, you know, at being, you know, whatever sport I chose. And, you know, it was probably, it was about five or six years ago. Now my kids are grown and out of the house and, you know, going to school. And I used to eat peanut butter. That was my snack. That was my go-to snack. I mean, I always had jars of peanut butter around and, you know, always in a hurry, grabbing a spoonful of peanut butter. It was my energy, my protein, whatever I needed. And one day I ran out. And at the time, I forget what I was doing, but with business, my kids, my boys, I was just so busy. And a few days go by without me having peanut butter, which honestly had never happened before. And I remember taking a deep breath and going, that feels really, really kind of strange. I feel really good. And then I thought, oh, no way, no way could I be allergic to peanuts. And so I continued to stay off of that and just felt better. And I thought I better go get tested. So I went to a doctor, an allergy and asthma specialist. He ran all kinds of tests on me 
And I always knew that I had allergies like seasonal and environmental. But what he told me after testing was, you know, all those bad seasonal allergies that I have, I'm that allergic to, to food as well. So I actually was getting an allergy test one time and went into anaphylactic shock, which, which is that's how bad, you know, they just like do a little skin test with a little prick. And uh, I, you know, that's how allergic I am to some things. And with foods, wheat, soy, nuts, you know, all of that, cut them out of my diet. And I swear, I felt like Superman. I was thinking, you know, I always knew I was fast and strong. I always said, you know, I was a sprinter, not an endurance guy. But now I'm feeling like an endurance guy. For the first time in my life, I was breathing better than I ever had before. So now I'm thinking, I need to start working out again and see where this can go. Because I honestly feel like Superman. And so I started working out at the gym and I think I, I started going to Orange Theory, which, you know, is one of these chain clubs and rowing as part of their program. And I just totally got into it. I started just going, you know, two, three, four times a week. And I always looked forward to the rowing part. But then my knee started hurting, my legs started hurting. And I went to the doctor and orthopedic doctor and they did some x-rays and then MRIs and stuff. And he said, I thought it was your meniscus, but you don't have a meniscus left. <laughs> and so as it turns out, I had grade four arthritis in my knee and my hip. And he said, you know what? Absolutely no impact for you at all. And, you know, you just have to find exercise that you can do without having impact. And so I went back to Orange Theory, you know, like the next day or in continued going. And I went back to him and said, my knee just really hurts. And I've been modifying, not doing anything. You know, I'm just doing like jumping jacks without the weights and stuff like that. And he goes, I said, no impact. Jumping jacks, that's impact. He goes, you need to either swim, bike or row. And I'm thinking, I, I do not like swimming, never been a biker, but row, really? Hmm, that sounds interesting. Kind of like the photography thing. Can you really make a living as a photographer? Can I really just row? Hmm. And so I looked into it and found this whole world of competitive rowing. It, it, it's, you know, the indoor rowing is what the outdoor rowers do. So your collegiate rowing teams, your Olympic rowing teams, rowers, this is how they train even during the season. This is a major part of their workout, working out on the, the rowing erg. And off season, when they're not on the water, that's how they compete. And I found this whole world of competition with rowers that you know, a lot of people don't know that it exists. And I certainly didn't at the time, but I started looking into it. And it was just amazing. I, I, I remember thinking, okay, with the 500 meter and the 2000 meter, my, my times at Orange Theory were, you know, this. And, but now I've got to go and I've got to get one of these competition rowers, the Concept 2. And I remember getting on one of those and just feeling like, oh, maybe this isn't what I do. So the rowing machines they use, like at Orange Theory, they're water-based and your time for a 500 meter is actually going to be about 15 seconds faster than what you would do on a regulation rower. So that was a, a an eye-opener, but it just kind of pissed me off. And so I, 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 worked out just a little bit harder, but it was one of those things where, you know, you could look on concept two on their website and, and rank yourself and see how you ranked, you know, among people from all over the world. 
And I was just so determined to watch myself, you know, go from number, you know, 250 down. I wanted to be within the top 20. And then when I got to the top 20, you know, that wasn't good enough. I wanted to be in the top 10. And I went to my first competition was in Paris in 2020. And I ended up getting second silver medal in the 500 meter. And then in the 2000 meter, I don't know what happened, but I ended up getting seventh. And, you know, people were saying number seven in the world is not too bad, but I was devastated. (laughs) (laughs) I could just hear coach Lucia yelling at me, you know, (laughs) so I, I had to work harder. So at that point, I, you know, I figured, okay, I need a coach. I'm going in, I'm going in full speed. I'm doing this. And so I looked around and made some calls and actually started doing some training programs and actually had somebody call me and say, look, my wife is thinking about, you know, starting a program where she can do some virtual coaching and things like that. And we saw that you had signed up for, you know, her 2000 meter program, you know, just like a schedule of what you would work out. And she's wondering if you'd be interested And I said, absolutely. And his wife is Rebecca Romero. She got a silver medal in Athens for Great Britain and and in rowing. And then she switched to cycling and got a gold medal in cycling in Beijing. So, So she's pretty hardcore. And so I was pretty excited to have this, you know, Olympic medalist be my coach. And so she set me up with programs and we worked together And so the following year, it was actually, I believe it was supposed to be in China, but that is when COVID hit. So they went virtual with the world championship. And this time I got silver medal in the 2000 and I've got a gold in the 500. And then, and so that was 2021 and 2022, I'm still training, still wanted two golds, but it didn't happen. Same thing, 500 meter, I got a gold and got second place in the 2000 meter as well. And then building up to that, I was also able to get, you know, I, I got a gold in the Canadian and what was it? The America's qualifier competition. And so anyway, I, you know, that kind of kind of is where I was up up until this last year. And then we were virtual. It was supposed to be in, oh gosh, Hamburg this last year. But again, at the last minute, they decided a little too sketchy still. So it went virtual again. So that was, that was. Now, now Steve, the audience is probably missing. How old are you right now? I just turned 60 this past summer. So, and when did you start rowing? 55. So this is, this is the amazing part of the story, right? Is that you were early athlete, business, family, all the different stuff that happens. You find out that you have this allergy, right? You get rid of it. You, you, you all of a sudden get to this point of feeling like Superman, you find rowing out of necessity, right? Because it's pretty much only one of the physical things you do, but then you end up becoming a world champion in, in your late fifties and by, in, in by 60 years old. And so that, for those who are listening, that is the amazing part of the story is that you didn't give up and go back to your old coach, 
you know, that you have that was, you know, I, I love that story of just with the bat and, and your hand is bleeding. I mean, these are things that today people probably go to jail, right? If they're <laughs> coaching a kid or something like that, you know, <laughs> and, and, but it created this drive and energy and toughness to you that, you know, helped you for 40, you know, 50 years later, basically ultimately become a world champion, which I think is just super fascinating. And it's also interesting too, you know, if you would have done these other things, sometimes people's best is their high school varsity team. You know, sometimes people's best is maybe in college. Sometimes people are fortunate enough to, to have all the things together to become a professional athlete, but they're still, their peak is 27 and many times, right? But to get to your spot where you're peaking still, if you may, you know, at the age of 60, I think is remarkable. And I appreciate you sharing that story. So as, as we get close to the wrap up here, I'm, I'm just kind of curious from your perspective, because it seems like winning is such an important part. You know, you're so driven to win. I mean, I love it. Oh, I just, I was slacker. I got seventh in the world. How are you measuring success today? You know, it's easy to measure success in the rowing world, right? So in my competitive world, you know, bringing home a gold, that is the ultimate success for me, you know, but on a day by day basis, you know, I'm looking at my training and my times for various rows and various workouts. And, you know, it kind of being Japanese, half Japanese, you know, I always go back to the word Kaizen, which is basically constant improvement. And on a daily basis, you know, are you doing better? Because if you have a goal and you're constantly making improvements, eventually you're going to get to that goal. And that drives me and keeps me going, not only in the competitive world, but in the business world as well. You know, that Kaizen theory is just what I have applied. And I know you had asked me before about, you know, strategic planning and all of that. And again, without the business education, I've never put together a business plan. I probably wouldn't really even know where to start, but my, my planning is sitting down, making goals and just knowing that, you know, I've got to do better every day and do something towards that goal every day. And uh, it's worked out pretty good for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's so important is so much of a plan. What you did say there though, is you're creating goals and you're finding out what things you have to do to get to there, right? And and then you're you're continuously working on improvement, and and that's the part that, you know, once again I go back to a lot of times people get to a peak but they don't they stop, right? It they're done, and and the hard thing is to keep moving forward, keep believing that you can do the best you can with whatever you have, you know, whatever resources or whatever you put together. All right, so as we're hearing the end here, what is a book that you would recommend for our audience? There's a book by Alex Hutchinson called Endure. And, you know, that really was a changer for me as well. You know, it basically explores, you know, the human body limitations and through all of the scientific data that has been recorded through years from, you know, the VO2 max to, you know, all the different races. And, and, you know, it talks about the exploration of the South pole, but what it comes down to is our limits are basically governed by our mind. So in other words, you know, if you can train your mind to 
release that governor every once in a while, you know, you'll find that your limits are a little bit further than what you had thought they were. And, you know, I think that applies not only in the world of competition and athletics, you know, because going faster, quitting or slowing down, you know, those are all decisions that you're making in your mind. But, you know, if you're quitting or slowing down, chances are your body can keep going. And it's the same way with business, right? How many people start a business and, and end up quitting in the first year? And it's probably because I shouldn't say probably, but, you know, my theory is, you know, you start a business if you're not trained to look at something like, oh, well, I took a loss in that first year, but you know what? I'm going to keep going. You know, your mind is telling you, I took a loss. You better stop right now. So I look at that when people, you know, end up closing their business in the first year, I think that, you know, they should have just kept going and it was just their mind. And you look at serial entrepreneurs and guys like that. I think they were just trained. Their, their mind is like, okay, well, you know, you made it that far before. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And so I think, you know, that theory applies both in sports and in business and in life. And, uh, you know, so it, it's a very interesting book full of great stories. But more than that, I think it makes you think for yourself, what can I do to raise my limits and, you know, let my mind kind of let me achieve what I'm really capable of doing. Steve, where can people, I think that's, by the way, a great book recommendation. I actually do want to listen and read that book or listen or read whatever the other comes out in the forum. And, and so where, where can people find out and learn more about you? You know, my photography website is tagphoto.com. So it's T-A-G-U-E-P-H-O-T-O.com. And my rowing coaching business, which I'm ramping up is road to fitness. And that's road R O W E D to fitness. And so that's kind of been a work in the progress, but that's where I'm going with my coaching and, and fitness business. So that's perfect. Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the measure success podcast today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And to everyone else who's listening, we're just so grateful for you. We hope you've enjoyed this inspiring story by Steve Tag. Thank you so much for listening and wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.